This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London dedicated to improving research and supporting families because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the video podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. This is welcome to episode 83. This is recorded on January 15, 2021. I'm your host, Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. And I'm here along with my relatively new co-host, Brenda Weigel from the University of Minnesota. Welcome, Brenda. Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure. Thanks for being here again. And we've got two guests with us today for our discussion on an important topic. Uh, the first guest is Dr. Christopher Dandoy from the University of Cincinnati, where he's an assistant professor at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Mem uh, Medical Center, uh, old friend of mine, and uh, uh, a leader in the field of TATMA uh, uh, for bone marrow transplant. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much. And our other guest is Sarah Moore, who's a mother of a patient with neuroblastoma, who I imagine this topic caused significant angst for uh, when her son was undergoing a double transplant, but unfortunately he, as my understanding, did not uh, experience TATMA, uh, but um, uh, has she's uh, done a lot of thinking and talking about it and uh, was concerned about it, and we have uh, uh, her here for her perspective. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for letting me be here. Yes. So, Brenda, why don't you kick us off with just a little bit of uh, discussion about why this is an important topic, and then we can talk to Chris about his recent study. Absolutely, and thank you, Tim, and uh, it's a pleasure uh, to kick off uh, this uh, podcast. So, uh, TATMA, or transplant-associated thrombotic microangiopathy, and we're going to call it TMA for the rest of the uh, meeting, it's easier, um, is um, a devastating complication of uh, cellular transplant. And it happens with um, all forms of transplant, um, but more commonly uh, with um, allogeneic transplant and also most recently been seen much more commonly in the tandem transplants that are used for neuroblastoma. And the challenge is, is it's a multi-organ uh, involvement with um, small vessel injury leading to end organ um, insults affecting the heart, the kidneys, and um, multiple systems in the body. And can, uh, in most cases, if left untreated, be very severe and life-threatening. And in the vast majority of cases has historically been life-threatening um, and uh, very few patients have survived. And those who have survived have gone on to have long-term complications with uh, organ uh, and organ damage. Um, and other devastating complications are strokes uh, and neurologic damage. So there are considerable concerns with this. And um, Dr. Chris Dandoy uh, at Cincinnati Children's is really one of the uh, emerging world's experts in the field, um, has um, many landmark papers describing um, the, um, the, the condition of TMA, but most importantly, and very recently just published uh, in blood uh, it, at the end of 2020, a landmark paper utilizing um, a therapy um, for uh, TMA and actually uh, 
was successful, um, moving the bar for response by about almost 50%, which is incredible. So we uh, are looking forward to hearing more um, about this incredible work uh, and about the syndrome of TMA. Perfect. Thank you, Brenda. And thank you, Tim. And thank you, Sarah, for letting me be a part of this. And uh, um, what questions can I answer or would it be best to just dive in? Well, I guess I'm wondering uh, first sort of what led you to this. To the, I, the, the study really is Im impressive. First of all, in its scope, you have 34 co-authors and I, I forget how many institutions, but um, you, you collected a ton of data and so forth. Uh, and I think really moved the bar, but what led you to sort of want to do this study? Where'd the idea come from? What was important about doing this study? And I should say it just finally, although it was published online in December, the official issue that it appeared in was three days ago. So we're, we're really on a hot topic here. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, so really this uh, goes back to when I was a fellow. Um, Sonata Jordel, who was my fellowship mentor, was did or completed a prospective study, study looking for TMA in transplant recipients. They looked at approximately 100 patients and found that TMA, um, either moderate, mild, or severe, was found in about 30% of transplant recipients. And that was published in Blood back in 2014. We presented a lot of data from that paper. And we would, we would present the, these data at meetings and people would say, oh, that's just the Cincinnati children's disease. Cincinnati children's has a high rate of TMA, but we don't really see it. So what we did was we went, or we went to um, two different groups, uh, the Pediatric Transplant and Cellular Therapy Consortium, as well as the, um, as well as the, uh, the, pediatric acute lung injury and sepsis investigators. So POLICI, and then as well as the pediatric uh, PTCPC. So these are th three different collaboration, collaborative cooperative groups yeah. that yeah. are involved in transplant. Transplant, and then we went to their, to the ICU folks and they had a subgroup of just transplant physicians. And we said, hey guys, I don't, we don't have any money, but we think this TMA has no, start. <laughs> This is a thing, and we think it's really impacting patients. Here's our data from Cincinnati. Here's what we propose. We want you to look for it. Here's how you screen for it. The screening is easy. I need you to look for it, looking at blood pressure. I need you to look for look at LDHs uh, on the patients that are admitted through the first 100 days. Do your Look for urine protein to creatinine on your patients. You're using the data that we published in 2014. You're, 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 you're following evidence-based guidelines follow it, just implement it into your practice, put it into your order sets and screen all of your prospective patients. And then do what you will. If you wanna treat it, great. If you don't, that's fine, but just look for it and know that it's there. And then what we did was they prospectively screened 13 institutions, screened, and then we retrospectively, after about a year and a half, we retrospectively looked at all the patients. So it's, that's why we called it a pragmatic a pragmatic institutional approach because again this was free this was people volunteering their time that's why we have so many authors too because that was their the currency they received for participating hey we'll write this up we'll put this in the abstracts but they screened their patients and then we retrospectively looked 
So what did it include? Uh, the screening include looked for schistocytes, or broken down red blood cells in the periphery. You're gonna to need to talk to your pathologist because sometimes they're not looking for it or it's not as reported. So just look for it. Once a week, look at uh, 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 spot urine protein to creatinine ratio. Look for proteinuria. Look for the refractory anemia and thrombocytopenia. Look at LDH. Look for refractory hypertension. Um, and again, that is something that oftentimes, unless you're looking for it, it can go, not that we just ignore hypertension, but you can say, oh, you know, maybe the kid's moving too much or angry. And it's something that can be, can, can not, that, that folks can just kind of say, oh, it's just hypertension, it'll, it'll get better. Uh, it's something that, you know, if you're not piecing it together with the bigger picture, it can be tricky. Well, all, all of those things that you've described are very common in, in, in many of our patient populations right. individually, right? So yeah, individually, and you can just, you can kind of, you can, if, but you're actively looking. And then if you're wanting to, it's not part of the screening. If you suspect, if you're starting to suspect that they have TMA, then you can order off this complement act, complement level or, or SC5B9. That was what we asked them to do. How did you make the connection between um, increases in complement and this constellation of, of symptoms. How was that connection made? That as some yeah, so that was back in the back, back in 2011, 2012, 2013. Uh, again, with what Sonata was looking at, so she looked at a couple of different things. So one, she looked at a lot of uh, look at the complementation cascade in general and looked at all of the different different proteins. On top of that, uh, she was able to see deposition of complement in biopsies or kidney biopsies. And so that led her to look in her prospective screening the complement, is complement activated? And it was in the kids that did poorly. So if you, what she found is there's a high risk subset of PMA of kids that both had proteinuria or significant proteinuria and then had complement activation, those kids were the high risk group and those kids had a survival of 30%. Um, so we said, you know what you can do. And then as far as treatment, some pe people, we didn't, we didn't say you have to treat one way or the other. This is, this is what we do here, but just, we want to know what you did. Um, and then they, then they reported it out. So this was a massive data gathering exercise from lots of different institutions. Was there, how difficult was it to set up that, you know, the important thing in clinical research is data accuracy, uh, authenticity, right? So yeah. uh, how did you have them reported? Did you set up a unified portal? Did they email you, you know, red charts? What, how did that work? Yep, they had red caps. So they would enter in just the patient, you know, patient 001 from center, from nationwide or Cleveland Clinic. You know, and they would just, and they would keep track of who that patient was on their side uh, so that if they needed to reference back, they could. But what we had was all de-identified information. So it was uh, a centralized kind of data repository for you yeah. guys. Like yeah. they just entered the data freely, which yes. uh, is miraculous uh, that folks were willing to do that. And is this something that is ongoing? Chris, are, are you continuing to track the data for TMA in this? In so this our case? next thing, and we're going to be, we, I need, I want to go back to these centers and say, okay, guys, it's been about a year. Why don't we look at these patients? What's happened to them now? We had roughly 
you know, in the allogeneic recipients, we had 16 roughly percent or all patients included had about 16% incidence of TMA, 17%. In the, specifically in the neuroblastoma kids, where, what, what happened with those kids? Because 25% of the time after tandem transplant, they're developing TMA. And it's, it's, if, if you're not, if you don't get on top of it quickly, it can be pretty detrimental. That's a perfect uh, place, I think, to bring in Sarah into this conversation. Sarah, with, with numbers like that, uh, hearing that before your son went into transplant, what, uh, and especially that you were doing this, uh, going through a transplant at the institution where, uh, that had the reputation for the TMA, I guess, in a way, uh, what, how did that make you feel? What were your thoughts? Um, was, was that something that was disclosed on the consent form? Uh, tell me what, what you think. Yeah, so actually I was, it was stomach dropping and very, very surprising, honestly, to find out that it was that high of a percentage. I had heard some chatter um, just from other caregivers in general um, that TMA was out there, but I had absolutely no idea that it was that high of a percentage. Um, and so it, it makes you doubt for a moment if this is something you really wanna go through with um, considering the high levels of toxicity uh, but what was really helpful, one, was being at Cincinnati um, with Chris that we're talking to right now. He's incredibly knowledgeable about it, obviously. And so he was very reassuring once we continued to have discussions about it. Um, and I think that was shortly after uh, going through the consent that we started our conversations. Um, and there was a couple of things that really stuck out to me as far as bringing some reassurance to the situation. And that was one that they're very proactive about screening for it. So they catch it very early. And then the second piece of it is that they get it treated quickly. And one of the things he mentioned that really stuck out was that if you screen for it quickly and get it treated quickly, uh, then in almost all cases, at least at their institution, they've been able to proceed forward with the rest of treatment. And that was really important. Obviously that meant that there would be enough of a healthy function in those organs that they could continue and finish out and not lose out on survivability. And then that also led to another question that I brought up to him. I said, well, looking back, at least in the neuroblastoma tandem studies, that was really based upon a timeframe when they weren't actively screening and treating for TMA. So if we're now doing that at these institutions and actively screening and treating it, then is that likely to positively affect the overall survival and outcome for these kids? It's, that's a very important set of points you just made about uh, it being reassuring. I think uh, Chris and, and Dr. Jadell's work here in, in publications that will now enable all centers around the world to be able to be proactive and screen and treat. So uh, Chris, tell us, summarize your findings again, uh, the incidents um, and, and the sort of outcomes that you knew at the time and then how you think maybe that's changed now that people's practice are shifting. So we saw that roughly 16, 17% of patients developed TMA. Now about now, now we have a, a cohort of patients of people that are very invested. They are knowledgeable about TMA. Now they're screening and they are actively, you know, at, at, at they're treating as as per their institutional guidelines. And so we collected some of the data, we collected data on outcomes of these patients as well, including patients that were treated with uh, complement uh, inhibitors uh, such as Ecoluzumab. And the interesting thing is 
the patients that had the highest risk of disease, remember with our 100 patients that we did back seven, seven, eight years ago, the overall survival was about 20% roughly. And although survival is lower in these high-risk groups, the patients that were treated, still they still had a lower overall survival, but it was not nearly as low as that, um, uh, that, that, uh, that we saw before. Uh, mortality was roughly 30% still not, not right. We've still got a lot of work to do, but that definitely wasn't the mortality of 80%. There's other parts of that, not just mortality that we've got to consider. So patients that developed TMA had uh, higher ICU admissions. So their ICU admissions was about eightfold higher than uh, the patients without TMA. They required non-invasive ventilation at a much higher percentage, roughly 25% compared to 6%. Uh, pericardial effusions occurred in 9%. So pericardial effusions is something that we don't talk about nearly that, that often. And these aren't just per little small trivial pericardial effusions. These are ones that needed intervention. These are ones that needed pericardial synthesis or maybe a pericardial window. That occurred in roughly 9% of patients with TMA. Pulmonary hypertension occurred in 6% of TMA and 15% of those patients that developed TMA also required dialysis compared to only 2% that did not develop TMA. Um, so these are other complications and something that I'll say work on is, is bloodstream infections. So these bloodstream infections, if you're into quality improvement or healthcare associated issues or patient harm, bloodstream infections occur at a much, much higher rate in patients that develop TMA than those that do not. And so all of these different issues that are occurring in patients with TMA really add on to the healthcare burden, but then on top of it causes a substantial amount of mor morbidity. So we have a long way to go still to A, recognize it early, reverse it, develop and test other interventions. It's not just that equaluzumab is the end all, I do believe in the future we will have further uh, investing, further interventions, but then two, uh, trying to dive in a little bit more of the interplay between GBHD uh, and TMA, understanding more about endothelial injury in general, which kind of goes into the, the venoocclusive disease, TMA realm, how those interact and how, um, how that we can mitigate it, mitigate it early and, and, uh, and turn it around. I know in your paper, you, you described how the um, allogenetic transplants have a higher risk than auto, I believe, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yet, yet, as Sarah mentioned, you uh, had a 25% incidence in the neuroblastoma patients who were getting autos, so, uh, which is higher than the overall incidence of the whole study, which you said was 16%. So do you have any explanation for why certain subgroups of patients are at higher risk, especially autos, where you think of the risks of an auto to be much less in general than a risk of an allo. And then you have, you have to think. And so you think the, view, the, the patients that, were, that received busulfan and melphalan or just one cycle of carbo, etop, and melphalan, those patients that just went, had one transplant, they did not have any uh, incidence of TMA. So is it a second hit? You get the first, the first pretty, pretty big dose of chemo from, uh, from cyclophosphamide and theotepa in the first transplant. And then the you, you're, you've already injured your endothelium. 
And then the carbo-etop uh, carbo the second transplant causes further injury, and then that starts the cascade. Um, again, we, we have more information, more learnings to do. We have, to, we have more research that we need to do. Um, there is a recent blood paper that Krista Borak wrote, and he, he proposed this two-hit type, type process. And the, the chemo is one, and then maybe a viral infection is a second, or maybe it's GVHD that tees it off, and then it starts a complement cascade. But I think we, this, there's more to, to learn. Uh, and importantly, it doesn't happen in the CNS kits. So the kids getting three transplants, they don't get TMA. So why is it that these kids are getting it? Is that because of a difference in their preparative regimen, their chemo? Yeah. yeah, probably. Yeah. And it's not as intense as this. Chris, can you, can you comment a little bit on, you mentioned a few times of intervening early um, in, in treatment um, with the complement um, blockade. And, 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 and also in reflecting your, all this data, it was left to different sites um, as far as their standard practice. Can you speak a little bit to that variability and trying to come up with then recommendations potentially um, with what does early intervention mean? What does that look like? What, what should be the triggers in your opinion to intervene with complement? Right. Um... So one is you got to screen and you got to look for it. And then once you meet four or five of these criteria, you should probably start treatment. We do ecolizumab and we follow the guidelines that we published. We have a prospective study, again, that Sonata's uh, running a multi-center prospective study looking at ecolizumab and treatment and how it impacts uh, outcomes of these patients. Those days, that study should finish up probably sometime in calendar year 2021. Um, but it, it is really, uh, I think the first most important priority is just recognizing it, that it happens. And then, um, and then starting equalizumab or another complement uh, blocker. What we have seen, the kids that have done poorly, and we've had, and, you know, we'll get calls and folks will say, you know, I've got this kid now on dialysis. As after transplant and uh, we gave some radiation and then it went okay, but the kidneys were in kidney failure. And now when we look retrospectively, we think this all had started about three months ago. Um, that's what um, you probably want to try to avoid. Well, uh, the other point you made, I just wanted to reemphasize a, a bit is that there are a lot of different manifestations of this, a lot of different end organ, as we say, complications from the heart and the kidneys and elsewhere. Uh, and, and we know in general that patients undergoing transplant do have a lot of these complications, many of which lead to morbidity or mortality. And uh, what, what you're describing is I think a strategy that might mitigate many of those or reduce the incidence overall and make transplant safer. So it could have a huge impact on the field, I think, uh, if, if we could have wide implementation of early screening and early intervention. So uh, that's really exciting work. Congratulate you on it. Well, thank you. And it's the team again, all these folks that were that that are part of the the uh, article, they all volunteered their time. Yes, it's all a team team effort. I, I guess uh, we should probably wrap up on what the future directions are your next studies. How do you um, make this more widely known? Uh, besides just publishing it? 
do you anticipate getting more and more centers involved or what what do you sort of think is next uh, and the next big challenges really? So I think there's two learnings. One, I'll talk about TMA and then one is an opportunity for our field in general. So the first is the opportunity to, um, the opportunity here. I think there's more information we need to know as far as just an observational information as far as long-term effects. What does, what does TMA do? How does it impact our patients? I think there's more opportunity to test different interventions. So when Sonata's study wraps up, I think that will be able to be spread and, and trialed in a larger me mechanism. And then we just need to get the data out there uh, and then get this such as you folks are doing right now, getting this out to our colleagues out in the community, just increase awareness. The second is this pragmatic approach. So if you think about, we started this, I started nagging centers probably in 2013, 2014, when I was finishing up my fellowship, like, hey guys, we can do it, we can do this and getting them all excited to go and then we got it rolling and they probably started, they implemented it in 2016 or so. So maybe it's 2014 and 15. But if you think about what this would have cost to do a 13 center prospective screening to help understand TMA, this would have been a multi-million dollar study, right? A multi-million dollar observational study and years and years and years to try to get it up and running. We would have been writing R01s and then they would have rejected and then we would have sent it over to somebody <laughs> yes. else and then they would have rejected it too. And then we would have been like, oh, what? So we have to think about how we do in real world observation and learn from our experience collectively. How do we do that? How do we learn from each other? Um, and I think there's a great opportunity. Uh, we. Jeff Valletta over at Nationwide, we're setting up this learning network that we can learn from each other in BMT. I think that that platform and trying to have a directed mechanism to learn from each other is, it will be, is how we want to move this field and how we'll be able to take advantage of uh, shared learning and collaboration. Uh, well said. Sarah, any final comments or questions? Um, no, just, I mean, speaking to the caregivers and parents, I just, study up on TMA, try to understand also the symptoms of what to look for as this continues to roll out to more institutions and they get on board. As parents, the best thing you can do is just advocate for your child in the meantime and, and try to get on top of it and reach out to your care team if you suspect TMA at all. Uh, great, and Brenda, anything final? No, I completely echo uh, Sarah's uh, final comments. Um, I think if this is, and building on Chris's, it's it's increasing awareness and and recognition by the the caregivers and and parent advocacy uh, certainly helps with that to recognize those early signs and symptoms of something that could be passed off as just being um, part of medical care. So if you put the, all the symptoms together, it may be telling you something. And, and there are strat, potential strategies to, to intervene, which I think Chris's data clearly points out that if, if recognized early, there are strategies that may make a difference. And this is, I think, a real opportunity to change the field and change how we think about some of these complications of, of transplant.
Great. Well, thank you for your comments, Brenda and Sarah. And thank you, Chris, for being here and uh, all your great work. And congratulations again. And thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children for sponsoring this video cast. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight and thanks for listening and watching to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsonkdoc and find all Twipo episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.